Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. My usual podcast host, Gabe, is on vacation at Zegama Beach in the Outer Rim right now, and they don't have great Wi-Fi. But luckily, I am joined in the podcast studio today by returning guest and fan favorite, Will Satron. Will, welcome back. Thanks, Tim. We have a new recruit on the podcast, Jeff Wilson, who is a communications manager at the Plowshares Fund. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. It's great to be here, Tim. Thank you. (laughs) Well, we're really happy to have you here because in this episode, we're going to continue what I call our mini-nuke episode series. These are the special episodes that have a slice of pop culture relating to nuclear weapons, but... You know, the whole thing isn't radioactive because not every episode that we do can be three hours long. Because, uh, you know, what do you want to do? You want to live forever? Uh, so that's right. We are here on the podcast today to talk about the new plots of the 1997 movie Starship Troopers, as well as what the was originally uh, based off of, which is a 1959 novel by Robert A. Heinlein, also called Starship Troopers. Uh, so this was originally meant to be a movie called Bug Hunt at Outpost 9, but then the film uh, studio bought the rights to the book, incorporated some, but not all of the story. The director, a really interesting guy, Paul Verhoeven, who also did the original Robocop, the original Total Recall adaptation. Uh, he took the the book, he tried to read some of it, he got, quote, bored and depressed, so he never actually finished it, but the <laughs> screenwriter was a big fan of the book and did. So he took the world... Uh, of Heinlein and in, in, inspired to uh, took the outline of it most more or less and kind of made something very interesting and I think the crew we got here assembled is really good. We'll watch the movie for the first time this week. I have been obsessed with this movie since seeing it in the theaters in person over 20 years ago, but I've never read the book. Jeff here is a fan of both the movie, I think, uh, but I know he reads the book once a year. So I think uh, we got a good crew here. Let's get into it. Uh, Will. You like this movie? I think more or less, right? I did. I, I liked it a lot, actually. I uh, so this was the thing too. Uh, when it was in, when it initially came out, it was pretty poorly received by critics. Uh, and Jeff circulated an, an article from the Atlantic, kind of highlighting this. That article came out about five years ago, and it was talking about like how this was a misunderstood film. So having that background and watching it for the first mm-hmm. time, knowing kind of what to look for, yeah. really gave me a sense of appreciation of the satire and really, really dark humor uh, that Verhoeven was trying to achieve. Yeah, this is definitely a, a movie that's really hard to pin down, yeah. right? Is it, I think Robert Ebert called it, like, you know, it was just a high school boy's, like, dream, you know? One, one-dimensional trivial flick. Yeah, yeah. Trivial flick. Yeah, Ooh. trivial. It, it's carried this cult perception of being, like, the greatest satire of American militarism, you know? Like, it, it's this very interesting thing that... Now Americans are criticized for not understanding. Like, of course, you know. Like, but no one, yeah, no yeah. one really got it at the time. I certainly, in seventh grade, did not understand it at all. And totally. I, and you can see that reflected. It made $121 million worldwide, which sounds like a lot, except it was on a $100 million budget. Yeah. Uh, they thought this was going to be a bigger, a bigger deal. Uh, especially to come from the guy who made, you know, Robocop. Yeah. And yeah. I think Total Recall came out before this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing about Verhoeven, right, is, is so the other thing about this movie is that uh, 
it's a satire, but has been criticized for being pro-fascist, right? Yeah. And Verhoeven, like, grew up in uh, Holland that had been, like, he was, like, born in Nazi-occupied Holland, right? Yeah, he's Dutch, yeah. Yeah, and, and, like, so he actually saw the effects of this. The opening scenes of the movie are built around Nazi propaganda. Like, and and there's this, this moment where Neil Patrick Harris walks out, you know, and uh, he's actually wearing an SS uniform. Yeah. And he said, I thought that it would be at that moment that Americans would realize that this was satirical. I just marched the, like, the boyish wonder out wearing an SS officer's uniform. And nobody got it. You know, nobody understood that. They were just like, oh, yeah, he's he's a he's space officer. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, I think... So in, in that Atlantic piece that I referenced earlier, they wrote that, like... At, on some level, this movie was written and made to be misunderstood. Yeah. That was kind of part of the beauty totally. of it. You don't really know if it's supposed to be this blockbuster Hollywood yeah. Avengers yeah. type movie or if it is like a Mel Brooks, yeah. you know, uh, ball, um, space balls yeah. or, yeah, you know. It's hard to pin down. As yeah. opposed to the book, which is very easy to pin down. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a book, as we mentioned uh, it's very famous for being uh, kind of the inspiration and the starting point for hard sci-fi. So you got like Star Wars, which is fantasy space opera. Space opera. Uh, but you know, like, hey, h- how is there gravity everywhere? How can they breathe everywhere? You know, how do the guns work? Yeah. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The Force, right? Uh, this is hard sci-fi. This is everything's going to be explained in great detail, and a lot of this stuff comes from uh, the author's experience in the U.S. Navy for five years. Right? He uh, he won a Hugo Award for the best novel in 1960, so it really left a big, you know, impression. Although it was, you know, Jeff, why don't you talk a little bit about this before we get into the film? It was a controversial book in the science fiction community. He used to be known for writing like juvenile mm-hmm. fiction, like largely short stories, maybe, or just a. Uh, not nothing like this, and some, something which we'll talk about, yeah. and something nuclear related. This is why we're talking about it here. Prompted him to write the book that we do now. But like, what what else about him is, is kind of an interesting story? Yeah. So he uh, Heinlein is is known as the dean of science fiction, right? You know, he he's largely credited with pop with making sci-fi not pulpy anymore, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't like Buck Rogers. This is like serious science fiction for you know air quotes serious audiences you know it's like like it he popularized it it wasn't just a serial anymore this was a novel you know this is like same level as like asimov you know people of that caliber right the book at its core is a nuke book too right there's this this i don't know if it's apocryphal but it says heinlein is sitting down at the breakfast table he opens up his newspaper (laughs) and there's a full page ad saying stop nuclear testing right and he says he was flabbergasted by it. He, he spit out his Cheerios. Yeah, spit out his Cheerios and immediately, like, the damn commies are trying to weaken us from the inside, basically, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, he immediately forms this thing called the Patrick Henry League. And in the book, there's quotes about, you know, like, failure of democracies giving up their freedoms because they don't have the wherewithal <laughs> yeah. to, and the strength to, like, fight for them anymore. And so he viewed nuclear weapons and nuclear testing as the surest guardian of american liberty you know and it was like very very integral to his but but the book has been criticized as as certainly being militarist but almost being fascist you know and and which is what verhoeven really digs in on in the movie yeah so let's get into the the movie here because we got a lot a lot here to talk about for a movie where you know nukes are play a really interesting role in the plot it's not right up on your face there's only a couple mushroom clouds but really 
multiple points in the movie and multiple like thematically. Mm-hmm. It, we there's a good reason why we're talking about it here. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, you know, spoiler warning for those that haven't seen this over twenty year old movie or. <laughs> nearly, yeah. nearly like you know. I'm not gonna do the math on there, but like over 60 years, 70 year book. Uh, I think that that's right. We'll see. I'll fix it in post <laughs> if the math is not right. Fix it in post. Yeah, you know, it's been around for a long time. So if you haven't had a chance to read it, you know, at least read the Wikipedia page for the book. Uh, see the movie. It's it's available pretty much everywhere. I think it's on Netflix right now. Uh, yeah, so go and check it out. Uh, so let's talk about the the world of the movie itself. So I you know I see this as uh, Earth in the movie. It's run by a one world government called the the Terran Federation, which was created. Uh, and we learn about this because <laughs> we we get a history lesson pretty early on in the movie um, from a, a teacher, a high school teacher. Uh, Michael Ironside plays uh, was it Raz Raznik? Yeah, yeah, Mr. Razak. Yeah, at that time, he, yeah. he isn't a lieutenant yet. Yes, yeah. yes. So he he's telling us the story of kind of the history of the world. And it, I also think it's kind of funny because it seems like it's the last day of class. But he's teaching the things you would teach in the first day of class. Yeah. Whatever, it's not important. Uh, for our purposes, we learned that the the Earth, after there was some sort of like decline, there was a failure of democracy around the world, and the veterans of the world, uh, former military uh, folks, kind of came out of the ashes and combined in their forces and and created this one world government. The world collapsed because of the quote inability to control crime and juvenile delinquency. You know, the youth, the youth finally got God, to the world. Goddamn youths. Yeah. Maybe there's more on the book about this, Jeff. Uh, particularly in the in North America, where all these kind of internal issues, there was a war between an alliance of the United States, the UK, and Russia against Chinese hegemony. Did they talk about whether or not this was a nuclear conflict, or was it just kind of left vague? Something happened. It's really bad because this is about 200 years into the future of 1960. So, you know, we're a little bit closer to that today, but we still got a little bit ways to collapse. Yeah, it, so it's it's interesting. Throughout the book, he he talks about various socio-political things that that distress him, but uh, they don't they don't get into whether actually like the specific instance that caused the collapse. But he has very strong opinions about what made it better. Right? Okay. and it's veterans, you know, rising together. He believes in this one-world government that's uh, the only people that get to exercise political um, autonomy are the people that have served the good of the political body. Right. right? People who have in the movie in the book, it's like federal service. Yeah. Those that have joined federal service. So yeah. that could mean in the movie, it's pretty much the military service. Mm-hmm. In the book, it could mean other things. Sort of. Uh, there's the great scene in the movie when they're going to sign up for federal service, right? And they meet the uh, ship sergeant that only has one arm, no legs, yeah. right? And that, that's a big scene in the book, too. And he says, you know... How about you, son? Infantry, sir. Good for you. Mobile infantry made me the man I am today. In that, they talk about everybody, you, you get your preferences. And so they actually say, well, maybe I'd like to be a canine trooper, or I'd like to be in games in theory, or, you know, and they go through your high school aptitude and stuff for what you might be good hmm. at. And Johnny Rico's last preference is the mobile infantry, right? He's like, well, I'm good at football and, you know, something hmm. like that. But they say in the book, like, if you don't get any of these preferences, if you don't, we don't, we don't actually want people here that are just going to, be a suck on the system that yeah. just want to vote someday but actually don't want to pay a price for it so they say if you don't make any of your preferences 
And if you're not good at being a ship's cook somewhere in the outer rim of the galaxy, you're going to be testing biohazard suits out on Venus or something. Like, we are going to give you terrible non-combat jobs. So, yeah, so there's military jobs and then there's non-combat jobs. But at least to me reading the book, the non-combat jobs are like, I think they even threaten, like, you'll be seeing how effective new viruses are, you know, out on Pluto. Like Still, still better than an unpaid internship in D.C. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right? Uh, so, so in the movie, one of my favorite things about the film is it interjects multiple points where uh, there are these like infomercials a little bit. Like they're basically like advertisements. Uh, you can imagine watching on your interactive smart TV or you're on some sort of proto internet type thing and it's throwing ads at you. And it yeah. says like, would you like to learn more about, about this or that? And, uh, and one of the first ones is, as Jeff alluded to, there is essentially a scene straight out of Triumph of the Will which was a Nazi propaganda film about how everyone needs to pull together, including young people. So there's this funny scene of like, Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part too. <laughs> They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. I'm doing my part too. Yeah, this little tiny kid who, you know, he barely can hold the gun, yeah. uh, says he wants to do his part and everybody laughs. And, you know, we, we learn about the dangers of bug meteorites being shot away that can use plasma blasts to shoot asteroids out of an asteroid belt across literally the to the other side of the universe and have them hit the United uh, oops sorry hit the Terran Federation the planet Earth but you know it's okay because we have these guns uh, that are like space uh, based platforms yeah. that can shoot them down so don't worry we're 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 on it and right. I I would like to point out that the plasma that is literally shot out of the butt of these giant bugs is somehow more accurate than the missile defense system we've been trying to perfect for 50 years yeah. in actual real life. Yeah. <laughs> they but, figured it out. But I mean like so that's another important point, right? That's like the world building here is that there's this there's only one media and it's state-run yeah, media, yeah. right? Like you start getting into that fascist, you know, sort of uh, mindset. And and Paul Verhoeven did this in RoboCop like he in RoboCop, he had lots of these really weird commercials, including one in particular that I love. It's like a board game commercial, and it's a family playing what looks like Battleship, but it's not. It's called Nukem, yeah. and it's like it's a bunch of it's essentially Doctor Strange love in a board game. Red alert! Red alert! Red alert! You crossed my line of death. You haven't dismantled your MX stockpile. Pakistan is threatening my border. That's it, Buster. No more military aid. Nuko. Get them before they get you. Another quality home game from Butler Brothers. It's that kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek, but also, can you not maybe see this on TV yeah. here kind of thing? That That's that world that Paul Verhoeven plays with so well in other movies and this one in particular. Well, and especially with this one, one of my favorite scenes from those infomercials is like, this is an M20 burrito. Who wants to hold it? I do, I do. And all these kids holding an automatic weapon and then they're handing out 223 shells to kids <laughs> and stuff like 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 they're candy, you know? And it's yeah. funny. I remember as a kid, we, we grew up next to the 1st Marine Division and I, my town would have like Marine days where they would drive Humvees mm -hmm. and like the LAVs and stuff down the main street and it'd just be Marines hanging out with kids and my Boy Scout troop would go there and like stand in the gunner turret of, you know, it'd be, it, it's like 
that's the genius of this movie is when you're watching it, you're like, that's absurd. But like in 1990s America was not that far off from the truth in some places, you know? And there are probably still towns in America where that would kind of be cherished sure. today. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I go to air shows yeah. every year. Like it's a, it's certainly a strong thing. And it's, it's one of those things that I think the movie tries to get across is like, it's not necessarily inherently bad. No. But it's just to let you know that there are steps along the way it's to insidious. a bit. Yeah. yeah. You just got to be aware of it. I think that's kind of what the movie is trying to show you. Yeah. How many times have we seen a nuclear bomber overfly a football game? You know, like... It's nuts. Yeah, it is. It's kind of strange. That does not happen anywhere else in the rest of the world. Point of the satire is, like, this seems normal, but it is different, right? You know, like, and it and in the wrong hands could be dangerous. Yeah, and, and speaking of, uh, of danger, you know, one of the things we see in this infomercial... Uh, is we see the invasion of uh, Clandathu, which is the bug homeworld. And it's like a news report. You know, we're brought, brought to you live, you know, like the person in the street. It's kind of like CNN basically watching the Gulf War, uh, showing you what's happening. But then everything goes really bad. The, the, the invasion goes really bad. What, what looks like the main hero of the character, the, the movie, our, our character Johnny Rico, played by Casper Van Diem, you know, he gets killed essentially like in the first five minutes of the movie. But then we cut back to a year later and yeah. we and then we meet our three main characters, which is Johnny Rico, uh, who's this uh, student, kind of like a jock, not very smart, really bad at math. Uh, so uh, I associate at least with the, the bad math part, not so much the, the athletic side. Uh, but we meet what seems like his lady friend, Carmen, and then a couple other friends like Neil Patrick Harris plays Carl, mm -hmm. uh, who is like one of his, his, his smart friends who yeah. apparently kind of has superpowers. He's, he's psychic. Got, he's psychic. Yeah. He's good at, at ferret wrangling. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in the in the book, he's good at electronics because in 1959, that's what a superpower was. <laughs> you know, he's very good at. He's like, he's part of the AV club at school, basically. And he's mm -hmm. like, instead of doing games in theory, he does go to like Starside R and D. He know, does like, machines, yeah, he like does Donatello. Machines. Yeah, yeah. And then we also have another character, Diz, who is uh, uh, a friend of the group. She really has a huge crush on Rico, but Rico only has eyes for Carmen, and that kind of becomes a whole a whole thing here. Um, but Will, why don't you talk a little bit about like one of your favorite scenes that you mentioned to me was during this uh, lecture that Johnny Rico gets on the last day of class by Michael Ironside's uh, professor character uh, about you know why why democracy is the way it is, and then at one point he says like, "This year we explored the failure of democracy. Well, the social scientists brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the veterans, how they took control." and impose the stability that has lasted for generations since. Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. Uh, my mother always said violence never solves anything. Really? I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that. You. They probably wouldn't say anything. Hiroshima was destroyed. Correct. Naked force has resolved more issues throughout history than any other factor. Yeah, so so it's Diz's character, and, and she says that, right? She's like, my mama told me that violence never solves nothing. And then uh, Mr. Razak says... I don't know where that accent came from, but... Uh, all, I, I all of this is supposed to be taking place it's in... It's good, though. I, yeah. I, I, I feel like it's a good Buenos fit. Buenos Aires, yeah. <laughs> Will, yeah. You, you, buy, you buy one cowboy hat and a pair of boots yeah. recently. That is just done. It's done. <laughs> But anyways, his response is then, uh, he, he turns to Carmen, uh, played by Denise Richards, and he says, what do you think the people of Hiroshima would say about that? And then she says, 
well, I don't think they'd say anything. Yeah. They're all dead. Yeah. And he says, that's exactly right. Yeah. She, she got good grades both in math and in yeah. history and exactly. civics. But his, his ultimate point is, yeah, so they're, they're dead. You know, non, non-violence, like their, their um, resistance, whatever, was futile. That conflict got solved through the ultimate yeah. violent means. Well, and, and that's a recurring theme, right? Might makes right. Right. Like, like yeah, I love the, the, the line uh, from the book that is paraphrased in the movie is, Violence, naked force, has settled more issues in history than any other factor. And a contrary opinion is wishful thinking at its worst. And then uh, this line... Breeds that forget this basic truth have always paid for it with their lives and freedom. You said breeds? Yeah, breeds. Ugh. Yeah, uh, it's gross. Yeah. yeah. So, in uh, what would be the most ultimate form of might, you know, to make right, but not, you know, nuclear weapons? weapons. And I think that that's the underlining theme here for all of this stuff. Uh, yeah, and then you know one other kind of little thing here is that they're they're in a like a biology dissect, dissecting class. And that's the first time we get to see the bugs, and it's just like a little like it's like a large cockroach, right. Sakarin sand beetle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks like a big beetle, yeah. and you're like, God, oh, this is no big deal. Is this what we're really worried about? And it, well, I guess at the very very beginning of the movie, that's right. We do see the arachnids, the more dangerous right. army it's type just weapons. Just a brief cut of them, though, yeah. running. It's people running away, okay. and then you see one. Well, we see these other ones, and they get dissected, and then uh, a character played by uh, one of the Golden Girls, um, I think Blanche yeah, from the Golden Blanche Girls, is uh, she is describing about how great these these bugs are, because in her ideal world, the ideal citizen is what she describes the bugs are, mindless, they reproduce at high rates, they serve the greater good without any sort of like questioning, and that you start to see like if that's the ideal of the, what they want, they kind of want the people in class to also feel that same way. Yep. You're starting to starting to build the world here quite a bit. We see a couple different little flash scenes of like Johnny Rico, he's a football star, but we also see that we the new rival was I love this guy's name Xander. 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 Uh, Xander. The douche of all douches. Yeah. yeah what plays, role does he play cuz like I, I like he has a familiar, familiar face that actor. I can't I, don't, I, don't I can't pin it. He looks a little bit like like Pierce Bronson. Yeah. Um Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan yeah, yeah. yeah. And the running theme of the podcast is I can't pronounce that guy's name. <laughs> That's why we haven't covered Goldeneye yeah. yet. <laughs> but but I, just just before we move on, real quick, that scene with Blanche I think is so oh, yeah. critical because we're getting this this exposition that you totally miss if you let it go by. One is might makes right, mm-hmm. right. The other one is this satire of fascism, right. This is like. The Nazi Ubermensch, you know, it's like this person that can do anything for the good of the society, but just everything bounces off of them. They don't care how callous they are. They're unemotional unless it's about the the Reich, you know, they, they don't care how many men and women they kill as long as they're doing it for the betterment of society, right? Yeah. There's also, there's also one, the end of that scene, there's an interesting part where... Um, Denise Richards gives a little pushback to what uh, the teacher is saying, right? She's like, oh, well, like, humans are kind of superior because we've created art, art yeah, yeah, and yeah. mathematics and science, and we build machines. And she's basically going to, like, dismiss. Yes. Like, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And, like, that's that's kind of powerful and a yeah, very recurring theme throughout the entire movie. Uh, and it's, you can see even a little bit more pushback on this society uh, by... Uh, Rico's parents. Rico kind of got he got like a little promotional material about wanting to be able to join the 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 federal service, join the the army, and his dad does not want him to join. His mom is very like wants is very protective. She doesn't want any like conflict in the family, but she also doesn't want him to join. 
something dangerous. And it really seems like in this world, there are some people who you can still have wealth and not necessarily be a quote unquote citizen, someone who can vote and, and make decisions, but you can still have money somehow. Yeah. The dad apparently has some sort of a business. Even free speech. He's openly yeah. criticizing the Federation, right? Yep. He doesn't want he's, 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 he doesn't want him to join. He thinks it's all a, a scam. He doesn't want yeah. all, all this different stuff. And, he, and then he, he bribes his son by saying, you, when you graduate soon, you won't go to the armed forces. You should come with us on a trip to the Outer Rim to, I love how he's Zegama Beach. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> really want to know more about Zegama, Zegama Beach. Beach. It's, yeah. uh, it's Luke Skywalker's uh, vacation home. Yeah, yeah. How about a trip to the Outer Rings? Zegama Beach. Huh? Yeah, I, my wife and I were watching it last night and we were just like, to Cabo San Lucas. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's, you know how there's a, occasionally in DC you'll get these pop-up bars of like the Big Lebowski themed or something? The Game of Thrones pop-up bar. We need a Zegama Beach pop-up bar. <laughs> it's like a tiki bar, but you know, yeah. some, something space related. But yeah. with aliens. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Um, all right, so our, our main characters, they, they finally decide uh, to join up. Uh, Rico is inspired by the fact that Carmen, uh, they finally get together after the big the big dance. Once he makes a decision to join the, the Federal Service, to join the, the mobile infantry. So they all go to sign up. Carl ends up going into games and theory, which I don't know. You want to get into game theory and nuclear deterrence. I'm sure there's something there. But, you know, games and theory, that's a, that's a military intelligence thing. He, he'll go work for the, the, the Rand Corporation. <laughs> um, and uh, Carmen wants to be a pilot. Uh, she's, you know, she's, she's 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 pretty serious about it. Her math scores are really good. I thought the scariest part of the entire movie is the the in this fascist state um, you, when you have your math tests done, you, you can display them on the big board yeah. in front of every, the entire class. And I, oh god, for me, for that, that's and shame your friends. Yeah. Apparently, Carl pulls yeah. up Rico's on the yeah. big board. So it is interesting. So in Norway, we had a system similar to that where like everyone's school, like the grades were posted like on a big board in the lobby, uh -huh. but your like the ID number was like secret, uh, right? So it was just socialism. like numbers. So you knew your number and you could find it on the big board, but yeah, a <laughs> li little bit different. Yeah. yeah. Just that, that's that one next step. It's a slippery slope. That's yeah. all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so Carl and, and Carmen and Rico join. Uh, you get that great scene that Jeff talked about earlier about him joining the mobile infantry. And then we get some more infomercials. You know, you get the, the would you like to learn more. It's, it's kind of tantalizing us to, to start to buy in a little bit more with these characters. Um, and then we also see a couple different things. We see a murderer uh, caught and tried and executed all in one day. All net, all stations. So so the guy who was the screenwriter for this movie, uh, that's the, the he, he has a little cameo as the guy that the is, just got tried. Yeah. You get an infomercial for someone being psychic. So we start to establish this world that there are psychics here. Who is Carlton Lasseter from Psych. Too. No kidding. That's really yeah. fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then we get this, uh, this is this is where we start to get a little bit of, maybe a little bit more pushback, a little very subtle elements here. We, we learn about this uh, outpost. It's in the arachnid quarantine zone. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a Mormon colony uh, who has decided to, you know, find another planet somewhere, and they set up this outpost, and it's also somewhat of a military outpost, and they all get killed by the bugs. And then that's where we start to think about, like, well, what's the bugs' reaction to that? going to be and that's kind of where the rest of the plot comes in so we get some really cool boot camp scenes because now johnny rico is in the military now uh i love i, I love these scenes with career sergeant zim uh who yells at the recruits he breaks someone's arm in like a a sign of force and then yells medic 
really great stuff. And then it turns out Diz reports for duty, which Johnny is not happy about. He wanted to leave all that life behind. And at this point, he still likes uh, Carmen. He thinks that they're going to get together again at some point, right? And uh, we also get introduced to who I think is the star of the movie, uh, Ace, played by Jake Busey. He's pretty great. Ace Levy. He's really great. All right, so Jeff and Will, why don't you describe my other favorite scene in this entire movie? We, we get into this, like, training montage because Jake Busey wants to be squad leader. So does Johnny Rico. So does Diz. Ace just can't really do one thing. He's not very good at throwing knives, and he complains about this. So what happens? I love this scene. Well, so he what he says to the drill sergeant, he, he, he kind of, like, tosses his knife down and gets all frustrated, and he says, like, Sarge, I don't get this. Like... Why do I have to bring a knife to a nuke fight? Yeah. All you have to do is push a button. Yeah. All you have to do is push a button. And what does the drill sergeant say? Put your hand on that wall! The enemy cannot push a button if you disable his hand. And then goes, medic! Yeah, medic! <laughs> medic! And, and the funny thing is that this is... So the book Starship Troopers is dedicated to all sergeants anywhere who have labored to make men out of boys. Hmm. Like that's literally the dedication from Heinlein, right? Um, and so Zim is this critical, like, critical yeah. character. Like, amongst all of the propaganda stuff, he is in the background of the whole movie having probably the most effect on the plot out of any Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, but I, I love Zim. He's he's a great character. Yeah, and he shows us the value of disarmament. Yep. <laughs> and and they have a whole <laughs> diatribe about this in the book. We start to know that in this world, maybe this is the first time we learn that like nukes are a thing in this world. Or no, we talked about Hiroshima, but then also this is the first time we know that it's still a thing, and yeah. that nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the arachnids is a thing it's a it's a part of their overall military planning literally part of their belt is like a grenade sometimes that is a nuclear weapon those kind of things so let's get into uh you know what is what is the idea here because why don't the uh military and the all the terran federation just use nuclear weapons against the bugs just like willy-nilly instead of sending in ground troops instead of training people in hand-to-hand combat and all of that stuff well jeff as, as the resident scholar here, what do, what do we got? The book came out after the first H-bomb tests, right? So, like, in, in the mm-hmm. book, the, the trooper that, that is questioning Zim says, like, you know, why, why do we need this when all of, we have to do is have some professor push a button and launch an H-bomb, right? And Zim goes through this kind of – this is, like, where Heinlein's really up on his soapbox, right? But Zim says, if you wanted to teach a, a baby a lesson, would you cut its head off? And the trooper says, well, no, sir, you know, I'm not evil. And then he says, of course not. He said, you'd paddle it. You know, you'd spank it. You don't, nope. <laughs> nope, ba- baby. <laughs> I know, I know. But then he said, he says, there could be a circumstance when it's just as foolish to hit an enemy city with an H-bomb as it would to, be, to spank a baby with an axe. War is not just, war is not violence and killing pure and simple. War is controlled violence. For a purpose. The purpose of war is to support your government's decisions by force. The purpose is to never kill the enemy just to be killing him, but to make him do what you want him to do. Not killing, but controlled and purposeful violence. Mm. So it's like, there's this, he says, uh, he gets into it a little bit later that there's, um, like, what if we just want to teach them a lesson, right? We don't need to bomb 
our enemy to smithereens when we want something out of it. And that's what we have men for. You know, that's what we have infantry men for. And so there's this whole conventional element is still necessary in the world of nuclear weapons, right? There's a less than deterrent need for violence. We haven't, yeah, because I think in the world of the book, we haven't really gotten to, we're getting there, we're getting there really closely, but we haven't gotten to a world where there's mutually assured destruction. There isn't both sides, you know, really close, I think in the late 1950s, where both sides have the strategic bombers, the missiles, where you can't really do surprise attacks as much anymore. Mm -hmm. We're starting to get submarines on both sides. Yeah. I, the idea of strategic deterrence is becoming more of a concept. So war fighting still, in this concept, nuclear weapons are just large conventional bombs. Yeah. They're, they're, there's no difference between large-scale conventional bombing of Japan versus one bomb that could have done the same thing over the course of a week. Also, can I just also point out, so that the whole kind of scenario that you laid out that uh, Heinlein wrote in the book, right, of like how you wouldn't cut a baby's head off, you'd just teach it a lesson, right? You wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. like off it. That's presuming, like, I don't really see that as applying here because yeah. like, the humans don't think that the bugs are smart, right? Mutually assured destruction is dependent on both actors on both sides of the aisle being rational and that's clearly not and they the can case. receive information but right, th that is like one of the key like things yeah, in the movie that we run up against because the movie is like after this not to jump the gun here but the bugs nuke buenos aires yes and the humans are like well now it's time to go to war you know like, yeah well in the books right isn't the so there's in the book there's two different alien species that yeah. earth is fighting one is more like the ones we see where they're they they're like they know they're bugs with like sharp knives and various things, but there's also this other group called, which I'm pretty sure in the, in the book world is a slur, but skinnies. Yeah, skinnies. Uh, they're more like the grays. I think they have green skin, but they're like the gray style, tall, skinny aliens, and they're they're fighting with guns. But both sides, like the the skinnies, the bugs, and and Earth, all have advanced weaponry, and it's not just shooting plasma stuff out of you know your your, your backside. Uh, Rico uh, breaks up with Carmen, very sad because she wants to explore the the galaxy. I think it's great. She you know she has a career on her own, but Rico is pretty sad about that. So that was his motivation to join in the first yeah. place. Um, he loses uh, one of his soldiers after making squad leader pretty much immediately. Uh, he loses someone in a live fire exercise, and then we were introduced to a character uh, who is played by Dean Norris, who's uh, Hank from Breaking Bad. Yep. Yeah. I love this. Uh, who orders Rico lashed in public as an administrative punishment, which I'm pretty sure in the book is also like corporal punishment is considered to be the the solution of the youth problem in the world. Like corporal punishment is great. Uh, I don't know if he's being serious, Heinlein, about it, but in the, in the book it's quite a big thing. And Rico washes out. He's like ready to walk out. He's done. He's going to go to Zegama Beach with his folks. He's uh, doing a Skype call with them, uh, more or less. <laughs> yeah. And and then he's like apologizing, but his family's like willing to accept him. But then all of a sudden the feed cuts out. It's not really working out here for me, Dad. I was thinking, I was hoping it would be all right if I came home. I'm sorry. I've been an idiot. Now don't talk like that. You just come on home. We love you, son. Oh my, what's that? It's like rain. This time of year? Your transmission has been terminated due to atmospheric interference. Please try your call again later. And then we find out what, Will, what uh, what major plot 
Act Two stuff is happening now. Right. So this is when uh, an asteroid from the bug world uh, impacts Buenos Aires, um, essentially having the effect of a nuclear weapon. Right. Like it it impacts, creates a shockwave, and knocks down everything. Um, basically, I, it seems like there must have been some survivors, but the way they portrayed in the movie is like everybody's dead. There's nobody left alive. In Buenos it Aires. looks like 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 deleted scenes from Threads or the day after or yeah, it's an H bomb analog. Right. Right. Yeah. It even shows you. Like, I know that when there's uh, an asteroid and it uh, hits the, you know, hits Earth, there's an uh, impact point and there's, you know, spreads out and all that stuff. But the imagery that we get looks just like you would hit, and then there's like a bomb radius, and it almost almost looks like like those fallout patterns, yeah. and it looks like something from Nuke Map. Yeah. The devastation we are seeing is unparalleled. Judging from early estimates, millions dead, a city in ruins. Goddamn bugs whacked his job. The meteor was shot out of orbit by bug plasma that derived from Clendathu, the arachnid's home planet. Nothing lives in what was once called the Latin Paradise. Oh, Johnny, it's us. Buenos Aires has been wiped off the earth. But then Rico decides to uh, to join back up he you know he he withdraws his uh resignation he wants to he wants to fight he wants to join the war even zim says he wants to get in on this but the only way that he would be able to do that is you bust he, yourself down to private yeah. right and it, so then we don't know what, what's going to happen with zim right but everybody starts to go on uh we see more infomercial scenes about how carl quote-unquote military scientist i love that shows us how to shoot the bugs uh, <laughs> aim for the brainstem. Uh, we see kids in real life, like squashing what I think are pretty real life, like uh, cockroaches, cockroaches uh, yeah. doing their part, and then we get into, <laughs> doing their part. and then we get into a situation where uh, there's this reporter who's uh, with all of the the troops and our friends Diz, uh, Diz and Johnny are starting to form a little bit of a close bond because they're all together, yeah. uh, and there's this really interesting like quote where. The reporter says, you know, some people say that the bugs are being provoked and that a live yeah. and let live situation. And then we get the, I'm from Buenos Aires, kill them all, yeah. uh, is what Johnny Rico like interjects to this. So you start to see the impact of how strong this attack, you know, apparently, we'll talk about this later, attack from the bugs has now rallied the world to fight in the original battle we see in the first part of the movie, the, the battle of uh, okay. the invasion of Clandathu. And keep in mind, like, this movie came out in 1997. Like, that's very close to how most folks in the United States reacted after 9-11, yeah. right? You know, like, I'm from New York, goddammit. I'm going to yeah. sign up in the Marines. And I'm going to kill them all. Yeah. And, it, and it didn't necessarily matter of that question of, but wh who are we going after? What are, What's the purpose of the activity? Any of those things, it was just... It's the weaponization yeah. of outrage, right? right. Yeah. And speaking of weaponization, you know, we learned that the bugs are much uh, smarter and more powerful than we expected. They have targeted heavy blast of plasma. They set traps for people. There's, they have overwhelming numbers, and our Earth weapons do nothing uh, to, to be able to fight them. It's a pretty bad situation. The Sky Marshal resigns, and a new Sky Marshal comes in and, and decides to, to take over because a black woman sky mark. Yeah, I, uh, I will point out. Yeah. It's like that's one issue that fascism has solved. We're all together as long as you're part of the system. We don't care any of those other things that once divided us. Yeah, is it's, that this, the way it is in the book as well? Uh, so one of one of the things that that people like about Heinlein is that for the most part, his female characters are all very smart and very capable. 
Uh, apparently, his wife was a rocket scientist. She actually held a higher huh. uh, rank in the Navy than he did. Hmm. And so, like, a lot of the... It, funnily enough, a lot of the female characters in his stories are very capable. They're very, you know, feminist, powerful, capable women, but they're also very feminine. They're all still very beautiful mm. and, you know, like, look good in that uniform. And, like, you know, so so it's sort of a mixed bag. Uh, Probably good for 1959. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we uh, we were treated to our first use of uh, a nuclear weapon in the movie during this failed battle of Klondathu. We get a quote-unquote, you know, nukem. The, the phrase nukem appears... Constantly in this film. Nukem, Rico. Nukem! Leave me, Rico! Hey, shoot a nuke down a bug hole. You got a lot of dead bugs. Fire teams! You locate a bug hole, nuke it. Nukem, Rico! Give me the nuke! You took me here, walking! And this is this is the one place where we see a little bit of a an actual mushroom cloud. So we start to get a little imagery of what we as a, you know, movie goers, people who watch nuclear films are used to seeing it. But it's not just a, like a, it's not a bomb that's dropped from an airplane. It's not a missile. It's like an RPG, essentially. It's like a shoulder mounted rocket. And the nuclear warhead looks a bit like a- A large diamond. Kind yeah, of yeah, like a diamond. It looks like, a, well, it looks like a, like an RPG rocket. Yep. And it just happens to be silver with a little, you know it's a nuke thing because it has a red light on it. Man portable <laughs> nuclear weapon. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Yep. So it, it get two of these get fired at the same time, and you start to see like a little tiny quick flash of a mushroom cloud, and that's it before everything when everything starts to go really bad. A uh, hundred thousand dead within one hour. Over three hundred thousand later, you start to see that Carmen thinks that Rico is dead, but he's actually he survived uh, at this major attack. He's he's hanging out in a back to tank recovering. So that's kind of where we are at this point in the film. Also, just like that, I think that this scene is critical from the movie element. And it's one of those things that people find really hard to pin down. Because yeah. the beginning of this scene, like, it's remember your training and you will come back the alive. Mu the music, oh, yeah. is, the music is triumphant. Yeah. yeah. And then they all get down there and it's, get some, get some, let's go, let's go. Let. And then the bugs show up. The commander is killed almost immediately. The music, and then the music cuts, cuts out. And then it's, Ace, what do we do? I... I don't know. I don't know. You know, and then kill them, kill them all. And then it's for the basically the past forty minutes you've bought into all these young, yeah. beautiful yeah. people, and then they're almost entirely killed, including uh, like Rico and Dizzy and Ace's best buddy, like is like horrendously slaughtered in front of them. Kitten. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kitten. Kind of kitten. And, and but I mean, it's like it's why it's hard to pin down is because you go from being like, oh, this is a this is a triumphant, dope war movie, and then yeah. all of a sudden it's terrifying, like. Yeah, so once uh once Rico comes out of the the back to tank a little bit, you know, more refreshed, he joins his new group to to start to, you know, to actually recover from this. And then we find turns out like the guy who's running this new group is our, our good friend Professor Raznak. Yeah. And he runs Raznak's Roughnecks. Roughnecks. Yeah. Roughnecks. And he's got one motto. What's his one motto? Uh, everybody fights, no one quits. Yeah. Don't do your job and I'll kill you myself. Uh, so we have new plans, right? We uh, the the new battle plan is to clear out uh, planet by planet mm -hmm. to to take out all this different stuff. So then it kind of that's where we start to get a little bit more into it. Go away from the decapitating strike, <laughs> yes. right? yeah, and start doing play by play by play. Yeah. So we get into a new place. Is this where we're in? Now we're in planet P. P. Yeah. yeah, planet P. Does that stand for anything I in don't the book? Know. Is it in the book called Planet P? It's not in the book. Hmm. We just had pizza for lunch. Maybe it's Pizza Planet. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Something there. Uh, so we're we're in Planet P, another human outpost, right? Humans, but and yeah. one of my favorite things 
is like you said, Tim, there's this subplot throughout the book about humans have already been encroaching on bug space, right? There's the arachnid quarantine zone, Mm -hmm. but we find out there's already Mormons there. And then when they go to attack the bug home planet, somehow there's already this giant freaking battle station there that's been like, that has a whole Navy fleet there. But but the infomercials and everyone else criticizes the bugs for spreading their spores and they, in colonizing space. But like humans have been doing the same thing. Right. Apparently forever. Uh, so the new plan is the fleet is going to quote unquote glass the planet. Yeah, another great uh, nuke term. So is that uh, is it meant to be that they were nuking it? Because you see more like we see bombers yeah, dropping bombs, bombs, but they don't appear to be nuclear. They appear to be more like imagery right. of, yeah. of like napalm yeah, Vietnam yeah. style, yeah. but it, well, something. But they do say the mobile infantry will come in, and if they see any bug holes, nuke them. Yeah. So we get that. We actually do a scene of that, but not before really quickly. I love this scene. We see a scene where one of our new cadets, our new uh, Watkins, I think his mm-hmm. name is. Um, Corporal Watkins. Corporal Watkins. Uh, he is, he, he's, he gets into a situation where he's he's got a wounded bug. And you see the bugs have eyes. Yeah, they personalize the They bugs. have human they eyes. Have eyes. Yeah. And he doesn't care. He shoots the bug. He says something like, they don't look so good when you scrape, scrape them off your food. food. Yeah. So we start to, you know, there's a way to watch that movie and be like, yeah, you're right. Bugs are gross. Kill them all. But then there's also, you start to get a sense of like, oh, these things have feelings. What's yeah. their motivations? Yeah. Very fascinating. Yeah, there's a bunch of humans on our planet shoving nukes down our homes. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what we should do about this. Yeah. So, th- so then we get to a situation where we, get, we, have a, we have a tunnel, right? And they say, all right, shoot the... T- uh, nuke them, Rico. Let's have a little bit of a breakdown discussion here about tactical nuclear weapons in, in the movie and also in real life. So in the movie, uh, I was trying to find out some more information. So what do I do? I, I, I Google tactical nuclear weapons, uh, Starship Troopers. And what do I get is but the Starship Troopers wiki site, like a fan site. And there's a detailed description of this. I'm like, oh, this must be from like the book or the maybe like a movie script or something. And the way they describe it is, uh, quote, unlike fission or fission-fusion nuclear weapons, the nuclear weapons used in the film appear to be an ultra-low-yield, pure-fusion weapon. Pure-fusion releases energy like conventional nuclear weapons but does not require fissile materials such as plutonium or uranium and therefore produces no fallout. This allows the mobile infantry to destroy huge plasma bugs and then immediately rush into the area. So I was trying to find out more about this because they even mentioned at some point that the weapons are called, quote, tactical oxygen nukes and i'm like what is that that doesn't make any sense so i've i will admit i have spent several hours trying to find the solution to this like what is this mystery and the the best i can just be described after going down a little bit of a rabbit hole going into the dark web all that stuff (laughs) uh is that it appears to be a made-up description based on a fan-made video game mod using the gary's mod engine on steam uh, on the steam engine platform so I think it's like a game that they made, like a mod of a maybe like Counter Strike or some other thing, where they put a thing and they then they came up with their own weapons and stuff. So again, I don't believe everything you you see online, but the thing that they call is uh, the TW two hundred two, which is not Tim Weismeyer. I did not make this up, but the the TW two hundred two Phantom Nuke Launcher, and they talk specifically about how it uses tactical oxygen nukes and things like that. But Let's talk about what it is in real life, because in the movie, yeah, they can use these tactical nuclear weapons and they create large explosions, but then there's no fallout, there's nothing. So then you're left to to ask either, one, there's some fancy new technology out there 200 years into the future where we still call them nukes, they use just fusion, or it turns out maybe like 
we have another theory here. Maybe they just don't, the military just doesn't care about the radioactive fallout. So they just, Paul Verhoeven once said in the commentary of this film that he thought about a fascist state and would you think about what kind of movies would this fascist state produce Mm -hmm. and make and people that would enjoy and watch those films. And he made that movie. So things like, where there's no radioactive fallout? Yeah, because why would they put that in the film? Don't join the mobile infantry, yeah. Things like that. Um, But let's talk about tactical nukes in real life because the ones in the film are made to be essentially the fantasy of people who believe tactical nuclear weapons can be used for damage limitation or can be used to fight small wars and not have to worry about large-scale global thermonuclear war. You can just fight little theater wars here and there. I know you you two have written a lot. You've thought a lot about tactical nuclear weapons. Can you guys talk a little bit about what a, a quote-unquote tactical nuclear weapon is compared to strategic weapons and also why they're largely nonsense uh, in your view in terms of nuclear war fighting? So when I first um, started in this field in, in Washington, D.C., I remember going to events... Um, like at the Brookings Institution or at the Hudson Institute and uh, or CSIS. Not to name names. Yeah, n- not to name names or anything. But like people were like the, the panelists were throwing around the, uh, the, the lingo like strategic nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons and acting like there was this really big and significant and important difference. And it turns out there is none. Like, there, there is no difference between a tactical nuclear weapon and a strategic nuclear weapon. The Secretary of Defense, former Secretary of Defense now, um, Jim Mattis, basically said so. And it's, but the distinction that scholars like to make is a tactical nuclear weapon, one that is essentially meant for war fighting. The yield is much smaller. It can be deployed at shorter distances, right? It's a short-range weapon. Yeah. The, the targets are a little bit different instead of, yeah. like, cities and counterforce targeting against a military installation it's it's a less than deterrent weapon and these are things so it all gets muddled right like during the cold war we produced a nuclear weapon for every conventional weapon system that we already had basically the army had them every single the marine corps yeah they all had them yeah i mean there were there were nuclear Backpack bombs, landmines, bazookas, sea mines, sea mines, torpedoes, torpedoes depth charges. Uh, my one of my all-time favorites, the unguided air-to-air rocket. Yeah, you know, just go. Yeah, <laughs> Colin Powell, I believe, was in charge of a surface-to-air nuclear missile battery. Like, like if you go to San Francisco, if you go to the north side of the uh, mm-hmm. Golden Gate Bridge, there's a Nike missile battery there that had nuclear warheads on top of air defense missiles. I went there uh, last October. Uh, yeah. I was in town for uh, I was in town in California for a wedding. I'm like, well, what else can I do? While I'm in town, oh, the next romantic thing, I'll watch the sunset with yeah, my wife at a Nike missile base and yeah. radar installation. So so the point of these weapons was that they were not for deterrence. Yeah. Like Will said, they were for war fighting. They were to augment conventional forces on the battlefield. Yes, but oddly enough, right, that me- also made them for deterrence. Like, yeah. That was the reason that we put them in Europe to tell the Soviets, like, oh, you come at us, brah? We're going to nuke you. Yeah. So they're only small nukes, but we're still going to nuke you. But the thought was was that we don't have in NATO the size of uh, a conventional military force that they do. So they can sweep right through uh, you know, Western Europe, and they'll go right into it, and we'll have nothing to stop them. We have and to augment forces with right. nuclear weapons. And they won't believe that we would use our strategic weapons, our large missiles, uh, Things like that. They they just don't believe that they would that we would trade, say, West Germany for New York. We would not strike Moscow. We would just uh, try to fight a conventional war and then ultimately lose. Right. So that's a thought here, right? But what is uh you know in a world where this kind of fighting is taking place, and if we were to use one of these 
tactical nuclear weapons. What would the reaction be, one, on the ground? You know, is it really going to be low fallout? Is it really going to be not seemed like it's an actual nuclear attack? But then what's the response by the other side going to be? Because the, the theory is, is that they won't respond with as big of an attack as normal. The perception is, you know, Russians are coming through the Fulda Gap in the tens of thousands. Okay, we use a small nuke. I saw that scene in, in this movie. Yeah. And totally. With the bugs, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it causes them to stop, right? They have to pause and say, oh, man, the Americans are serious, right? And they step back, and then it allows for negotiators to sort of diffuse the conflict. But we actually know from war games that this is not true. Will and I wrote a lot about madman theory and about uh, proud profit tests, and, and we actually have documented evidence from wargaming, from U.S. military wargames, that that's actually not how escalation works. So, yeah, basically, so in, in, in Proud Profit, it was a war game that the United States conducted in the early 80s. It was like 1983. Yeah, it was under Reagan. Um, anyways, they wanted to see like how this like escalation control scenario worked out. So there was a, a political conflict, uh, disagreement, have you, right, that happened somewhere in the Middle East, and it escalated. Ultimately, what happened was NATO used low-yield nuclear weapons against the Warsaw Pact to demonstrate resolve. The Soviets saw it as an attack on their honor, integrity, the homeland. They launched a larger tactical nuclear response. It escalated up the latter and when the uh fictive dust had settled uh of the war game hundreds of millions of people had died more people had been injured you know critically sick from the radiation i believe uh, so paul bracken writes about this in the second nuclear age and he says yeah. when the dust had settled europe was gone yeah and it, it we had escalated into full strategic war fighting between the united states and russia like it led all the way to the big nukes being used and th this is a i think a really strong reoccurring theme in some of the best movies about nuclear war uh this happens in threads Threads starts out as a tactical exchange between the united states and russia over uh, a army base uh in the middle east and it's like a complex and the u.s is about to get overwhelmed so they use one tactical nuclear weapon on a Russian like military base. And of course, what happens is it everything starts to unwind and, and becomes a full-scale exchange where, you know, our main characters are the ones suffering in the middle part of, of England, not anywhere near the actual that theater conflict where these weapons were supposed to stay limited. Yeah. In this movie, you know, the, we talked a little bit about what Jeff was saying about the different types of weapons, like the backpack bombs. You know, this seems to be the, the closest analogy is either like... What they call the Davy Crockett. Which was lovingly referred to as an IQ test in a tube. <laughs> yeah. Because the kill radius was larger than the effective range of the bazooka itself. So you fire this thing and you die. Yeah. It's not like the, the Fallout video games where you can just lob a, a little mini nuke here the, and there. The fat, 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 fat man. man. Yeah. Or this also could be somewhat similar to, you know, you mentioned the backpack bomb. The, the, what, the other terms for that is the SADM, the Special Atomic Demolition Munition, uh, the W-54 warhead, which could be somewhat between 10 uh, and 250 tons, which is, you know, it starts to, when you get to 10 tons, you're starting to get to the point of, like, the larger conventional weapons that we have way low than the, you know, kiloton range yeah. that was dropped on Hiroshima and, and, and Nagasaki. So you start to get that a little bit about, yeah, we actually had these weapons. We had them deployed. The army eventually decided to get out of the nuclear game entirely. When with, with the SADM, there's a great quote from a Green Beret that was taught to use it that said, I mean, we couldn't just plant the, the bomb and then leave it there. 
like because then you potentially give a nuke to the enemy if they can yeah. figure out to disarm it. So yeah. some guy had to sit around and wait for it to blow up. He says, maybe if you're Bruce Willis, you can outrun it, but yeah. I can't. You yeah. know, it was, a, it was a suicide mission. Yeah, the thought I think there was that you would set that you would set it off on a timer, uh, and then you would swim to a submarine that was going to pick you up, uh, and that's how you would survive it. But like. I mean, really? Sure. Yeah. 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 Which is, it's perfect for the movie. It's perfect for the, the kind of multiple scenes, but it's highly effective in the films. You know, they destroy tunnels and individual uh, bugs. So I think this is a kind of a fun spot to get back into the plot here, because in the book, uh, one thing we don't see until the third movie uh, in the Starship Trooper series, which I will admit to have seen both the second and the third uh, films, which we won't really get into too much, but the third one, Marauders. Uh, you start to see them using their like mech suits, their uh, mechanical jumpsuits where they can hop around and yep. and in the in the book, right? They like they jump around all the time. They have all these kind of armaments. Yeah. They like multiple nuclear weapons on them that they're like throwing them like grenades yeah. and hopping around with fighting bugs and stuff. We don't see that in Starship Troopers. I think they said that they were trying to figure out a way to make that work, but it it didn't fit the theme of, of what they were trying to do, and it was also. 1997. This stuff yeah, hadn't yeah. really... You can't really do that all too well. Therefore, these kind of RPG-type rockets that fire nuclear weapons really fit well with them thematically. Right. Well, and the interesting thing is that in the book... Uh, so going back to this... I love this point that you brought up earlier, that that they just seem to disregard Fallout in the movie, right? Like, they set off... Like, in that opening battle on Clendathu, they shoot a couple of tactical nukes at the plasma bugs, and then they then they get up and they walk through the blast area, yeah. right? Yeah. And they, they never have the, a line that says, like, God, it's really great that we have these weapons that don't produce fallout. Yeah. It's just not even talked about. Right. Which kind of makes me think that... It's propaganda, it's yeah. propaganda. No, no, no. And, and I agree. And I think that's the appropriate rate, way to read it, right? It is a propaganda film. But, but just one of my favorite things is in the book is that... Uh, they have tack nukes, the the mobile infantry, which, like you were saying, are guys in jumpsuits. They're yeah. they're like sort of mech warrior like troopers. In in the first time we see Johnny, he says, "This is my first time getting to carry atomic weapons. I had three of them on me, you uh-huh. know." And so he has a little rocket launcher, and he's looking around for targets in this skinny city. Uh, that look big and imposing or interesting, and he fires one at something. He's like, I don't know. It could have been an administrative center. It could have been their church, for all I know. But it looked big and impressive, so I shot a nuke at it. Till I play Fallout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when my first rocket hit, it gave off that unmistakable, if you've ever seen one, brilliance of an atomic explosion. It was just a peewee, of course, a small two kiloton yield. Uh, two kiloton yeah, yield. Two kiloton yeah. yield, which produces, you know, less than a critical mass, but. Who wants to be bunkmates with a cosmic catastrophe anyways? It was enough to clean off that hilltop and make everybody in the city take shelter against fallout. Better still, any of the yokels that had happened to be outdoors looking at it wouldn't be looking at me anymore because they would be blind, right? And so, like, the use of nuclear weapons is this very specific terror device thing. It's causing people to run away and to not focus on the mobile infantry troopers and to be afraid of fallout and have to redeploy their their military forces you know it's this very conscious like reason why they're using nuclear weapons yeah and this reminds me a little bit of uh you know training the troops and how to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield it's similar you know there there were, there were cases and i know i know you've talked about this a lot jeff like there's atomic soldiers like the types of tr- trainings 
that they would do. They would, in the middle of a nuclear test, they would get a, a group of army soldiers together that would, I think some of them volunteered, some of them didn't, yeah. uh, and they would say, let's, uh, you dig a tunnel. Right? Why don't you talk more about this? Like, So they would blow up a large nuclear bomb, and then, I mean, like, part of this thing is that people, you know, we dropped two bombs. The United States dropped two bombs in combat. And then very quickly, and this is why we see so many tactical nuclear weapons all of a sudden, the theories about how war fighting was done changed yeah. you know and it says there was actually a move after world war ii to actually end the united states marine corps because they said do we really need these guys anymore we have nuclear weapons yeah. right do we need expeditionary forces yeah at yeah. all when this happened right so so there were they tested how infantry would work under nuclear war fighting so they would detonate bombs and then all right men get up and do maneuvers through the blast zone and I think it's something like 400,000 U.S. military personnel exposed directly to nuclear tests. Mm -hmm. Like, with very specific aims of, let's see what happened to these troops, right? Yeah. And then it was pretty—they all had to sign a Nuclear Secrecy Act not to tell what they did and what happened to them. But they all suffered extreme health risks and stuff after this. Like, yeah. way higher than incidents amongst other veterans. And there, there's a great movie about this. Uh, it's uh, starring Martin Sheen. Uh, it's a TV movie from 1989 called Nightbreaker, where he is one of the commanders in one of these these tests. And he then later in his life has great guilt when one of his uh, f former soldier slash test subjects comes to him and talks about some of the issues he's developing health-wise. I think that this is important to bring up because this is why Heinlein wrote the book. Yeah. Because people were criticizing nuclear testing, right? But from what we know now, nuclear testing had a... Tr just in the United States, had such an impact upon people's lives. I think it's something like back-of-the-envelope estimates or something that fallout from nuclear testing contributed between 340,000 to 460,000 deaths from 1951 to 1973. Like, radiation getting into, like, cow's milk and stuff yeah. and killing children. Yeah, like, I mean, it killed lots and lots of people. One of our um, research assistants at Plowshares printed this up for me. I let, this quote says... Uh, Estimate placed total atmospheric release of radioactive material at over 12 billion curies from 1951 to 1963. In comparison, Chernobyl released 81 million curies. So it's like 140 Chernobyls over the course of 12 years. In the United States for a large portion of those, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and it's a, one of those things that you could see. But like, getting back to the film, I think we're almost near the end of it. And that's kind of the biggest portion of, of the nuke plot are these kind of scenes. So after on, on, on Planet P, there's a situation where they tr the, the bugs set a trap. It turns out the bugs are really smart. Uh, they set a trap for the the, uh, the mobile infantry that have to then get rescued by Carmen. And, and everything looks okay. When it turns out there's a, a brain bug, a really smart bug that is directing operations didn't sound like it's the only one of these brain bugs but there's definitely one on planet p we learned we, we meet carl again yep. uh full-on ss uniform carl it's so weird to see dookie hauser like that yeah. um but we, he talks about how like oh yes we knew that was going to happen we're sorry that it ultimately resulted in the death of diz you know after diz and enrico finally get together yeah. she gets killed in the next scene yeah he says i'm sorry it had to be your unit johnny it yeah. had a very low probability of survival yeah <laughs> and it even, it even like yeah uh, rasnak dies as well like yeah. a bunch of the main characters you know pass uh, and then rico gets uh, promoted 
because he's the only one left. Uh, and uh, we, so we get the situation where we're going to, on Planet P, we're looking for a brain bug uh, who's going around sucking out brains and learning what people are doing, like learning about us. Uh, that's the kind of our, our we, need, we need to get one of them so we can do the same thing. Uh, to them. So then there's a bunch of different little scenes after that. You know, there's an invasion. It doesn't go that well again. Uh, but ultimately, Carmen gets rescued after having to abandon her ship. Rico and her get back together. Xander gets killed because he gets his brain sucked out, but not before um, another tactical nuke comes and saves the day. Rico has his little bomb with him. Uh, they capture the brain bug, but not and, just... And the brain bug knows what the nuke yeah. is, too. We, we learned, yes, we learned that the brain bug knows what a nuke is and is afraid. Mm -hmm. Like, has feelings and is trying to respond to these things. Uh, and then the brain bug gets captured by our good friend Zim, yep. who had who had uh, enlisted again, uh, dropped down a couple of ranks. Uh, he's now a grunt. And it was one of my favorite scenes in the movie is Neil Patrick Harris, who we learned is psychic. He puts his hand on the brain bug. And he says, "It's afraid," yeah. and everyone cheers like it's like it's the end of Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, but then we really now learn so far these bugs have emotions, are smart, are smart, maybe feeling like they're the ones being attacked, mm -hmm. have just had their home nuked, mm -hmm. and now are like, "Oh, it's afraid." Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I don't know if I want to be afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. And we get a final run of these infomercial propaganda films. Mysteries will the brain bug reveal? Federal scientists are working around the clock to probe its secrets. Once we understand the bug, we will defeat it. We have the ships. We have the weapons. We need soldiers. Soldiers like Lieutenant Stack Lumbreeze. We're in target area now, Captain. And Captain Carmen Abanez. This is the captain speaking. All personnel prepared for drop. Soldiers like Private Ace Levy and Lieutenant John Rico. Come on, you wait! You want to live forever! We need you all. Service guarantees citizenship. This is a recruiting tool. Please, you know... Please, please join up. Well, and you also get it, the third use of nuclear weapons in this movie is the death of uh, Sugar Watkins, right? You like that? You like that? You know, like, yeah, he gets wounded. Johnny's got the nuke. And yeah. he's like, give me the nuke. You know, like, you try to be a hero, Watkins, just trying to kill some bugs, sir. You know? <laughs> And standing there with the nuke, holding the nuke with one hand. He's holding you like an ice cream yeah, cone. Shooting bugs with the other hand to save his friends blows himself up with a nuke, you know? Yeah, but, and I love again how the, the nuclear weapon in that scene, oh, it just makes like a couple, of, like some fire. Yeah. It makes a little bit of like some fire in a tunnel, but don't worry, everything's fine. Yeah. And then, of course, like the tunnel collapses conveniently right behind them. Yeah. I mean, it just, uh, it's, it's a crazy, crazy movie, um, but it only exists because uh, a relatively grumpy gentleman opened up his newspaper uh, in 1958, uh, April 5th of 1958. So this is where we're going to get into our nuclear points. And I think the first one I want to talk about is this inspiration for the film because Robert Heinlein uh, opens up his newspaper. I think it was like a Colorado newspaper. And he reads a full-page ad by the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy demanding that the Eisenhower administration in the United States stop testing nuclear weapons. Uh, and of course, uh, Heinlein did not like this one bit. The National Committee for a Sane Nuclear
nuclear policy is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a strong peace organization that wanted to dismantle and disarm nuclear weapons and wanted to at least at the minimum not continue to test in the atmosphere anymore, wanted to have a moratorium on nuclear testing. Uh, there's really strong connections between SANE, uh, S-A-N-E, and Hollywood. Uh, Failsafe, uh, Sidney uh, Lumont, the guy who uh, directed Failsafe, strong connections there uh, for with, with Sane. Like one of their, I think he was on the board or maybe one of the people with the early parts of that campaign. Uh, but Highland did not like that uh, at all. Like the, I have a couple different pictures of what these ads look like. You can see the top of it. It says nuclear bombs can destroy all life on Earth, and it's got a couple of facts and in, in figures on what nuclear testing is doing in the atmosphere. And it and it's literally like a campaign. It ends with like a clipping that you can send your information instead of like it's signing up for a newsletter or signing a petition on change.org. You would like sign up to be a campaign person to do additional protests. Even Dr. Spock. You know, the one of the, the guys who at that time was a celebrity on health and especially the health of children was going around telling people about how their families should be very worried about the amount of like, uh, you know, radiation and, and strontium in their water and all of those kind of things. And it was a pretty big, big portion of that ad campaign. So not only did Robert Heinlein get really upset about this, but he stopped working on one of his, what eventually became, what, Stranger in a Strange Land. Did you read that one, Jeff? I have not read that one. That one's supposed to be pretty good, yeah, and he stopped, stopped writing stopped it, writing it to write Starship Troopers. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he, he, penned, he penned this. Uh, he even, him and his wife, uh, formed uh, the Patrick Henry League in 1958 to protest, quote, communist line goals concealed in idealistic-sounding nonsense, which is, I'm sure, what... Paul Verhoeven said that the book was, but the other way around. Yeah. And he urged Americans not to be soft-headed. So as Jeff mentioned, he was a big fan of nuclear weapons, the U.S. nuclear arsenal in particular, that it was the one thing stopping the Western world from falling into the hands of the Soviets and in communist control. He ran ads in newspapers with his own money where it was called, uh, the title of it was called, Who Are the Heirs of Patrick Henry? And I want to read a little bit of this because this is really interesting. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, and then he wrote, sure, there are some risks to nuclear testing, but those risks are willfully distorted claims of test ban advocates, and the alternative is surrender. We accept the risk. So he's even saying nuclear testing may be bad, but we're willing to sacrifice all of those deaths, all of those conflicts that Jeff mentioned, uh, those consequences, that's fine, because nuclear weapons are the only thing keeping us together. He called Eisenhower, who I would have thought he would have really liked, given Eisenhower's former role in the military, uh, you know, a hero of World War II. He called him a political general long before he ever entered politics, stupid on all fronts and dependent on his staff. And he wrote Starship Troopers as like a, a continued way to to promote this, uh, to promote this particular ideology. Uh, the one other element I want to mention is that he campaigned uh, through the Patrick Henry League for Barry Goldwater, yeah. Senator Barry Goldwater's campaign in 64. And if you remember him, uh, we did an episode on our podcast before the 2016 election, the day before, about how the Daisy ad, that's the one that uh, yeah. LBJ released. You know, nuclear testing played a big role in that campaign with with ads about how radiation was going to get into your child's milk, that Lyndon Johnson wanted to keep tests underground. So it's fascinating that he wrote Starship Troopers about nuclear testing, essentially a protest to people wanting to call for a moratorium. But ultimately, nuclear testing was one of the main things that defeated Barry Goldwater, amongst other issues. So it's kind of a really interesting role that how nuclear testing kind of plays a role 
in Heinlein's life. And I think it's uh, really interesting because we've all learned since the movie Them that nuclear testing causes giant radioactive ants. I think by the time he doesn't like giant bugs, I don't know why he would want more nuclear testing. <laughs> nuclear testing! That's how you get ants. Yeah, yeah big ones. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, there's a whole lot here. There's a lot more we're even going to talk about. Like he, he also was a big fan of world government. Because he thought that world government was the only thing to stop global thermonuclear war. You just have one person in charge of all the nuclear weapons. What are they going to do? They're not going to fight them. They're not going to use them on anybody. Which is, interesting enough, early on, one of the arguments made by disarmament advocates is that you should put nuclear weapons in charge of some kind of... In the hands of like the UN. So in a weird way, he, he has similar arguments, but obviously different backgrounds uh, with them. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because just like the movie, it's really hard to pin Heinlein down. Yeah. Right? Like, people like to hold he him up. He was against the draft. Yeah, people like to hold him up as, like, this hero for libertarianism, but yet he's for world government. Like, yeah. uh, Asimov said that, that before basically before writing Starship Troopers, he was a flaming liberal. You know, like... Like, he's sort of all over the map, and he goes through this, uh, like, some of his later books, uh, he, like, focuses on the benefits of plural marriage, and, like, you know, like, it's really weird. He's He goes through a strange transformation, but um, he's hard to pin down, and he brings up interesting points and interesting ideas but that are all put together in flawed ways. Hmm. So, you know, he's an interesting character. He's an interesting author. Well, uh, you know, I, I guess the the whole nuke versus knife uh, scene in the movie is not really in the book, but it is that it's thematically there. Yeah. That long speech he gives about wanting to teach lessons. You know, Zim certainly taught a lesson to Jake Busey uh, in that scene. But I want to know a little bit about what the lesson that we took out of. Uh, that scene you know the idea that in the movie it's a joke that like you can't push a button if you can throw a knife at someone's hand right but what is that like what does that mean in real in real life like uh, i was trying to play with this idea a little bit you know like destroying the hand could be a first strike against the principal leadership that has to make a nuclear bomb but also could deal a little bit with with cyber attacks against command and control systems i mean sure i i I think it's pretty directly analogous to like cyber attacks today Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah today um in real life and so the idea behind like our cyber capabilities that the 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 cyber capabilities that the united states is trying to develop is that you know in theory the russians would push the button and then nothing would happen right the missiles wouldn't actually go anywhere and vice versa that's what they're trying to do against us and what we're trying to do against the north koreans you can disable the hand or you can disable the button yeah exactly right like it, it, it really really doesn't matter um another interesting thing uh analogy that i saw and this is particularly in the way that the chinese see the american prompt global strike program as a threat to their deterrent the enable to take out their nuclear weapons this is a conventional weapon that's very fast yeah so like hypersonic glide vehicles right like it's it's like uh, prompt global strike is our concerted effort to develop surgical weapons that do not go into the nuclear realm so yeah. hypersonics um i think we rail guns would be included in that um and tungsten rods yeah yeah yeah, yeah. T- tungsten rods that you can essentially d- like drop down on a target like on on earth with yeah. su- with a velocity that creates like the shockwave the impact but no fallout right? yeah we we talk about that a lot in uh, our episode on the truly awful gi joe 2 uh retaliation where we talk about the tungsten rods the quote-unquote rods from gods 
dropping things. So I was going to talk about that today, but I don't want to think about that film ever again. <laughs> so go check that episode out. It's like one of our first 10 episodes or something. Right. Uh, back in the, the Joel days of Joel being on the, the podcast as the, the, the co-host, because uh, he's a big G.I. Joe fan. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. The idea of fallout, fallout-less atomic weapons, in the movie, they just create one. Yeah. It's not even a problem. Yeah, let's get into what our, we call our parking lot movie discussion, where we, after we're done with the movie back in the day, like after I saw this movie in, in 20 years ago, my dad took me to see this film. It was, uh, it's very, it was, I still have strong memories of the film, but I even remember more strongly because uh, it was a very awkward movie to watch with yeah. your father back in those days because of some of the gratuitous scenes. A lot of shower scenes. Yeah, but anyways, thanks dad for letting me see that, because like why I can continue to talk about this uh, stuff on these days, but like, there, you know, imagine we're done with the film and before my friend Bobby, who I saw it with, went our separate ways, we talk about the movie in the parking lot. The first question I have is, you know, book versus film. Jeff, I think you're one of the best people to talk about this, especially knowing now that they're thinking about maybe remaking the movie. Closer to the book. No, so I, I think that this, like I've been saying, I think that this movie is, is I actually think this is a great movie. And my understanding of the movie has changed over time. I remember as a kid seeing this and being like, like, get some! Hell yeah! You know, like... like Did you see it in the theater too? Yeah! And yeah. like, I remember me and my friends were playing Whiskey Outpost for days, <laughs> right? You know? It's an entertaining like, war movie. It is, it is. But, but, uh, and, and a lot of the criticism for it was like, this is just, you know, high school schlock. You know, it's nudity yeah. and violence and... Um, but I think it misses a lot of the substance that is there. Um, and having come back to it, it's like, man, this is very satirical. Like we talked about that scene where all of a sudden the triumphant glory music cuts out and all of the, your friends are dying and yeah. being chopped up into little bits and stuff. It's scary, you know, like there, there's a lot going on here. But it's done with a really light touch by Verhoeven. Like, you can watch yeah. this as just a popcorn action flick. Or you can dig into it and be like, you know, this means more than you think it does. Um, so, I, I like, like I was saying before we started doing this, I think I read this book about once a year. I always come back to it. And it's interesting for, you know, somebody tweeted at us in the run-up to, to recording this. You know, I want to know... Why do you need infantrymen in a world where they can glass planets from space, yeah. right? And, and that's actually a big part of the book, and I think it's a big part of the movie. Uh, in the book, uh, Heinlein says... Um, Jeff is reading the, bo- the book yeah, off yeah. of his Kindle. Yeah, <laughs> and my Kindle is being um, unresponsive. But he says, there are dozens of different ways for delivering destruction in impersonal wholesale via ships and missiles of one sort or another. Catastrophe so widespread, so unselective... That war is over because that nation or that planet has ceased to exist. What we do is entirely different. Mm. We make war a per- as personal as a punch in the nose. you know. And so I think one of the things that I like the most about the movie is this question of intent. right? Yeah. Like, so the, we find out very early that the bugs have the ability to nuke Earth right all the way across the galaxy, basically. Yeah. Um, and the humans obviously have nukes. Okay, so why do they respond with cap troopers? You know, why do they respond with the mobile infantry? Because they think the bugs are dumb, like somehow, right? But then we find out that the bugs are smart. And the bugs, like, actually understand what a nuke is. And the bugs actually have been planning ways to trick them and, like, pull them into situations. And I think that in the 21st century and that in, you know, like real life here today, that was a huge problem in the cold war, right? Will was talking about proud profit. Our battle plan uh, said, well, if we just use a couple of small weapons, the Russians will stand back and go, okay, they mean business. Mm -hmm. Okay. When in actuality, 
they doubled down, right? And I think that that, that makes sense. The, the problem with, with nukes today, with small nukes, is that they're making a comeback. Yeah. Right. So, like, part of this two trillion dollar plan with inflation to recapitalize on the U.S. nuclear uh, weapons profile is that we're going to build a whole new generation of, you know, air quotes here, tactical nuclear weapons. Nobody really calls them that. But... O- oxygen tactical nuclear. Weapons? <laughs> right. Or... Yeah. But but literally, the Pentagon Defense yeah. Science Board calls them smaller and more usable nuclear weapons tailored for battlefield use right mm-hmm. because we need to give the president as many options as possible in a conflict how how the hell can the russians tell what our intentions mm-hmm. is will wrote a great report back in the day about the new air launched cruise missile uh that's planned to being built at some extravagant cost okay the problem with cruise missile based nuclear weapons is that cruise missiles also carry conventional warheads mm-hmm. but it's the same missile so on a radar signature the Russians or the Chinese or whoever don't know if that's a conventional strike or a nuclear strike. They have to decipher our intention before deciding how to respond, and they only have minutes to figure that out. Are those nukes headed towards their nuclear stockpile? You know, what, what's happening here? Yeah. And so I love that intention gap, right? And so it kind of gets back to this, you know, this infantry thing. Well, at the end of the day, we still have to send grunts in to sort of muddle through and figure out what the hell the other guy is doing. But it also leads to this escalation in and of itself, you know. So, Will, I know that the thought of a bug that thinks is offensive (laughs) to you. Do we need to have strategic stability talks with the bugs? Because that's kind of the question that we have right now with the Russians is we haven't done strategic stability talks with them in a very long time. So we don't understand what each other's reactions will be to the use of first strike, small, limited nuclear war. That apparently they, we understand their war planning involves using those weapons. You know, we also say that we're going to use them in retaliation to your their use of them. But we don't talk about that very much. That was one of the things we kept hearing recently at the Carnegie Nuclear Policy Conference was both sides saying like the Russian representatives were saying, that's not our how we think. And then the U.S. side was like, we think that's how you think. Here's what we would do to respond to that. And the Russians would be like, no, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and we have that same issue with China. If you were at the the bug equivalent of the RAND Corporation, the, uh, <laughs> I can't think of a pun here for bugs and RAND or something there. I mean, give me a second. But if you were there and you tried to create strategic stability between Clan Dathu and Terran, how would you do it? How would you in- in signal that intent? How would you, what systems would you have go? I mean, I think the system that they portray actually in the movie is pretty good, right? With launching asteroids that essentially have like a nuke-like impact, right? Um, the only problem is you nuked, you nuke Earth once, what happens? Mm. Rally around the flag, right? Like yeah. it's it's the exact same thing that happened in Proud Prophet. We nuked. They the have nuked the moon first. first. Yeah, maybe they should have nuked the moon first to demonstrate intent, right? Like. Uh, that probably wouldn't have worked either because then we would have nuked one of their moons and yeah. then so on and so forth. I was actually, um, I was watching some of the Dr. Strangelove special features, like extra stuff yesterday, uh, last night. On the disc, they had this interview with Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense under John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he specifically cited this incident in 1961, I think. So this is before the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this was when... 
um, the United States was sending convoys into West Berlin because West Berlin was part of Eastern Germany, right? It was completely surrounded by Soviet-held territory, essentially. So the only way they could get supplies was, like, a convoy going through their territory. The Soviets had tried to start stopping those convoys, even though they weren't allowed to. So JFK then authorized, like, military vehicles to go with the convoys to escort them in. And they still tried to stop them. At one point, JFK had a conversation with his top general um, in, in Europe at the time, like the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, and he said, where is this going to end? And he said, well, sir, I think it's going to end with the use of nuclear weapons. Because yeah. essentially the scenario that he, JFK had, or Robert McNamara had laid out was that Soviets did A, we did B. The Soviets do C, we do D. You know, E, F, G. Yeah, escalation ladder. Where does it go? And the general's response was, I don't know. Yeah. Like, it doesn't end anywhere without the use of nuclear weapons. So, to your question, like, if I was a bug, sure, I, I would try to uh, demonstrate the credibility of my asteroid threat to the Terran Federation. It probably wouldn't work. It didn't work, as we yeah. saw with their asteroid nuking of Buenos Aires. And, um... Yeah, we, we got the brilliant movie that we have today. So that kind of messaging of, you know, rallying people together for a cause, uh, I think it's the last little bit of thing I want to talk about for our, our purposes of this film, you know, is is two things. One is the movie operates so well, as you said, it's really hard to pin down the film because uh, and this is an idea that I'm very much taking from uh, another podcast that I really strongly recommend. You know, Game of Thrones is kind of right around the corner. The final season uh, is in a couple of weeks here. One of my favorite podcasts that talk about Game of Thrones, uh, the books and the and the film, the book and the TV show is called the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. Uh, it's by a guy named Sean T. Collins who writes for Rolling Stone and a couple other places, as well as Stefan Sassi, who is a, a literature, I believe, a history and literature professor in Germany, and they talked about this movie extensively about how it's banned in Germany because it is can be interpreted the satire may be lost on people and it can be interpreted as very pro-fascist pro -fascist. and the only way you can get the movie is you have to go up to the counter and say like you know hey uh, wink wink can I have the copy of Star Trek Troopers and they have to go in the back and get it and then give it to you so it's a weird situation there because of how it can be interpreted that it's hard to pin down yeah. it works so well as an action movie by itself, and that's why it works so well as satire, mm -hmm. because good propaganda is not something that's right on the nose. It's it's something hidden. It's B2s flying over the football game. Mm -hmm. It's uh, movies like this um, that work well. Like they, they get you pumped up because it's an exciting action movie, but then it takes a second or third viewing to realize, like, oh, kind of, we've been a little bit had yeah. by this. So I think um, one th scene in particular that I it took me a really long time to think about is this idea that maybe the Terran government either, one, perpetrated the attack on Buenos Aires, or two, let it happen. What's important to me is, like, how ludicrous it is to think that you can fire plasma out of a land, like, a, the bug, a bug shoots plasma at an asteroid and pinpoints that asteroid's launch across the universe to hit a particular moving orbital target when they have no idea. They are not space-faring creatures. They don't have maps. Maybe they do in their weird brain. I don't know. It's it's really hard to think about how that works. You either have to just ignore it, or you can maybe say, maybe this is actually an insider attack to get people excited for the war as a way to continue to prop up this uh, fascist state. 
that's an argument that people make. I don't know where I land on it, but it makes the movie more interesting to me. As a reader of the book, Jeff, and as a recent watcher of the movie, Will, what do you guys think about that idea? Does it not matter? Is it interesting? Is it crazy? Do I Am I Alex Jones here? I don't want to be, but this is really fascinating. I mean, I think that bug would be one hell of a pool shark. <laughs> I, I'm not entirely sure that it does matter. I think that, that the point of the movie is to show the way that media can influence citizens, Mm -hmm. right? You know, at the end of the day, the the thing that I love is every time they say, would you like to know more? They click on more, and then it goes back to the plot again, right? So it is a propaganda film. Like, that's something that I've recently come out of it understanding. So, I mean, the fact is, is that, like, all those scenes, Buenos Aires, once the Latin paradise wiped off the planet, and it's just the death counter yeah. going up, right? Yeah. You know, and it's, the only good bug is a dead bug, you know, and it's <laughs> so like... the guy's dog. Yeah, the cool. guy's dog under the rubble, you know. Out of the ashes of Buenos Aires comes first sorrow, then anger. The only good bug is a dead bug. In Geneva, the Federal Council convenes. We must meet the threat with our valor, our blood, indeed with our very lives, to ensure that human civilization, not insect, dominates this galaxy now and always. Like I was saying, it's the militarization of outrage, right? And I I remember this movie, like, not to get too heavy here, but I mean, this movie came out before 9-11, but I remember after 9-11, Feeling that very same way, you know, and I remember people that that I talk to now that are like clear headed thinking individuals being like, well, it didn't matter that like Saddam maybe didn't have weapons like like, you know, that was the guy like we were told that was the guy and we joined up and we went after them, you know, like and so I think that 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 there there doesn't have to be a causal link. Between outrage and public policy. Well, right? this this fits into your discussions earlier about the use of, of a tactical nuclear weapon. Like, can you imagine if the Russians were to use a tactical nuclear weapon on the Uni- on, yeah. on U.S. Yes. soil or the soil of one of our allies, right. and troops are killed? Yep. We're not going to care that it's a quote unquote not like less than deterrent totally. bomb. Totally. Can you imagine what the 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 media will say about yeah. that? What what politicians will say about this? What your grandfather, yeah. your family will say about this? Right. Will and I wrote this wrote this article about this, and it and it used it used the escalation control thing, right? So so the roles between the United States and the Russian Federation have shifted a little bit. We have conventional superiority now. And they're afraid of NATO, right? So they, like, there's this, like you guys were saying, there's this supposed Russian policy of escalate to de-escalate, right? They'll use a small nuclear weapon on NATO forces to stop us from coming through Estonia or something now, right? Um, And I remember Will and I looked at that and we were like, that's nuts. Like, could you imagine, you know... uh, a battalion of Marines having been bombed, you know, with men dying of radiation poisoning and Fox News coverage and stuff. Could you imagine that any congressman would be like, wow, I guess the Russians mean business. Let's think yeah. about this for a second. No! Yeah, or the other way around, too. Yeah, I mean, there are NATO has nuclear weapons, right? We have something like 120 nukes based in European countries. 
that are ready to go for these sort of moments. You know, like I absolutely those things would be scrambled or at least someone would propose the scrambling of those nukes yeah. immediately. I was going like, to say, we, we'd try to, but you know, like for instance, like the nukes at Inserlik Air Base in Turkey, like we don't have planes at that yeah. air base to deliver them. So right. the planes would have to fly there and, you yeah. know, that would yeah, so obviously, be a whole thing. There, there's a whole lot more that happens between like nuclear use the, the idea of nuclear use and then actually using the weapons. But guaranteed there will be congressmen saying, it's time to go. You know, yeah. we got to nuke the bastards. You know, like, like, like that causal jump from outrage to war is so quick, right? And especially in times of crisis. Yeah. And that, that is so much about what, the cold, what we thought we had learned from the Cold War. We need to do everything in our power to pad out the time between when people become outraged and how long it takes to put warheads on bombs or put them on bombers or, you know, to pad out that decision-making tree. So let's get into the final piece here. Uh, let's, let's rate the movie and provide some recommendations. So every one of our uh, episodes, we rate the content that we're talking about on a consistent scale of one to five so that we can be being compare and measure across you know we're all about metrics here on the podcast but i'd also like to tailor it because if we get super critical about the content let's get super critical about the rating so i run the numbers here i've talked to carl my my military <laughs> scientist and uh he has told me <laughs> one out of five brain bugs because one brain bug will let you plot the course of an interstellar ballistic bug plasma uh, weapon, but five brain bugs, and you might finally get national missile defense system to work, right? I think that's that's the way to, to solve this problem. That's a tall order. Yeah. So I give this movie four point two five. You're splitting that? brain bugs here. Yep. I'm uh, I'm splitting brain bugs. Uh, I think the way to go with this movie is it's it's really really good. Uh, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but that's fine. I think I enjoyed it, and I I enjoy the fact that I enjoy it in different ways every single time I see it. Yep. Uh, my wife, who does not like most of the nuke movies that I watch, uh, liked this the first time she saw it just on the pure base level of that was more entertaining than I thought it would be. Uh, I don't think she was really interested in the next level uh, of, of like commentary for it, and that's fine. Uh, but like, it works as a movie, and it works as a satire, and I like the fact that it does both of those things, and I like the fact that I can continue to revisit it and kind of approach it in different ways. But what about you? Let's start with Will. Um, yeah, so I, I give it a four. Um, I, I thought it was a really, really great, entertaining movie. Also, having kind of the background going into this, knowing yeah. that this is a movie that's been misunderstood. I actually think uh, Slate Magazine a couple years ago rated it as number 20 in the top 100 movies of the 90s, mm -hmm. right? Like, which is like a far oh, cry from the original um, ratings that the critics were, were giving out. Um, yeah, the Rotten Tomato score was 62. Yeah, to me... This is kind of like a very subtle Mel Brooks movie, like a <laughs> 90s Mel Brooks movie, which which is great. And to your point about the remake coming out, like I'm worried that they are going to completely take the Mel Brooks out of Starship Troopers, mm. which would be terrible. Um, it's good to be the Sky Marshal. <laughs> Anyways, as it stands, 4.0. I thought it was great. All right, Jeff. I give it five out of five brain bugs. All right. Oh, wow. I, I love this movie, and mostly because... Just like I've been saying, I'm incapable of pinning it down. And I've also been incapable of pinning down how much I like it. As a mm -hmm. kid, I thought this was the best movie ever made. I think I liked this movie more than Star Wars at one point. You know, I just, I loved it. It was everything I wanted to be. I wanted to be a mobile infantryman. Uh, as I, I think through college, after I'd read the book, uh, I was like, 
Boy, this makes the movie look pretty stupid. My wife's father, who's a huge Heinlein guy, hates this movie. Yeah. And I can understand it that if you had read Starship Troopers, the book, before seeing this, you would go, this isn't anything like the book. You mm-hmm. know, like, it, it, and it is. It's totally different. Even the way they fight wars is different. You know, they're not in mech warrior suits. They're not. It's a total... It's a total left turn. Until the second direct to right. DVD yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. Marauders. But, um, so bad. But, and, and so at one point I was like, man, maybe that movie isn't that good, right? And then mm-hmm. I remember a couple years ago starting to be like, wow, you know, this movie's actually funny. Wow, this, with, with context, having seen The War on Terror, having like been through stuff, being like, wow, this movie gets it, man. Like, yeah. the, like this whole other level opens up. So every time I watch this movie... I find something new. Every time, you know, just talking to you guys here, I have like 10 new things to think about in this movie. It, it's it's interesting. It defies convention and it defies a, a way to pin it down. Yeah. And you just don't get that in movies that often. Well, people liked uh, uh, this movie and had similar reactions that we did to it. We have a little bit of things to recommend uh, for people to, to check out. Uh, I've got three things. Uh, I know Jeff's got some stuff. Maybe Will does. Uh, let's start with the the guests here. Let's start with uh, Jeff. What do you got? Yeah, so I would say, def- say they click yes on the want to learn more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> would you like to know more? Um, definitely, if you if you like this movie, if you like the book, especially if you're interested in military sci-fi, um, the two that I would really recommend are uh, Joe Haldeman, who's very directly influenced by Heinlein, wrote this incredible book called The Forever War. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar sort of startup. It's a guy that joins uh, – Haldeman was a, was a Vietnam vet. And so he want his book takes place in like the 1990s, so that sergeants that were still in the U.S. Marine Corps or in the Army are now still career sergeants in the United Nations Space Force or whatever it is, you know. So like it has a very Vietnam esque vibe to it. So a different sort of war taking place out in space against a different sort of bug alien, you know, different sort of alien, and it, it's very very interesting. My second suggestion would be John Scalzi. If anybody likes sci-fi, they probably know John Scalzi. Uh, he's a great writer, great author. He wrote a series called Old Man's War that takes place in an even more complicated um, sort of galaxy. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of different alien species out there. And humans, uh, the whole sort of mobile infantry of, of the Terran Federation in his books are they only want old men to join. They only want men that are have experienced life and that can bring all sorts of skills and interesting things, and then they basically give them a new body. And uh, and so that wow. it's a really interesting way to view it. Cool. Excellent. Uh, Will, what do you got? All right. So I got a movie and a video game. Okay. Uh, movie, The Day After. Mm. Um, I bring that up because... If you really want to dig a little deeper into the nitty-gritty of what actually happened in Buenos Aires after it got nuked, maybe a little bit of the motivation for why the uh, Terran Federation actually reacted the way it did, look at, look to the day after. Like, it's not like the city just disappeared from the face of the map. Like, the, the inability to provide relief yeah. in that kind of disaster, like, for, like, first responders to get there... For people to get access to things like clean water, medical yeah. care, when the, all of the medical staff in the surrounding area have been wiped out. They've also been nuked, right? Um, that's 
one of the really powerful aspects of the day after. The second one is Helldivers, the video game. Yeah. Helldivers was directly influenced by this movie. And ironically, I've played this game for a couple of years now and I only just saw the movie. And I'm just like, wow. I get it. <laughs> wow, I get it. Like, the helmets, the uniforms, the language the that news they use. broadcast. The, 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 you have, like, a, a weapon that's essentially like a mini nuke that yeah. you can drop down. You're fighting bugs that are the exact same bugs. They're yeah. the big tank bugs, yeah. and the little arachnid bugs. I, and... Well, I'm going to take this recommendation to heart. I think we might be playing that game a little bit after the podcast I, I think we have to. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this is really good stuff. Uh, Alright, so I have three quick things. Uh, one is a movie. Uh, go watch the original Robocop. From 1987, uh, that movie is amazing. Uh, it hits the same type of like satire, but also very uh, a good action movie on its own. It is amazing. Uh, for if you like this film, you probably would have already seen it, but it, it works really well. Uh, I recommend checking out uh, Robert uh, Heinlein's book *Expanded Universe* from 1980. It's available online. Uh, it's a collection of short essays, and not all of them I recommend, but there's some that where he actually expands on his views on nuclear weapons and nuclear war and why he uh, wrote this book in the first place. He basically is like an expanded introduction, and he responds to criticism that people gave of the book and voting rights, but also, you know, explores about nuclear weapons and his views on those things. I think it's worth reading, uh, even if you criticize some of the, fa the, the arguments, if you believe it's pro-fascist. It's fascinating to read uh, those sections. Uh, and then I do recommend the new uh, rebooted version of Battlestar Galactica mm -hmm. because you've got to see how those things are very heavily influenced by uh, this hard sci-fi concept. You know, the original one from, I think it was the 70s, doesn't, it's pre, obviously it's before Starship Troopers, the movie, but the new rebooted version is very clearly like, it, it's a very similar piece to it. And that's also a, a situation, a world where, People have started to colonize around the planets, and it's about, you know, what, how do people, what, what's human, what's not human, uh, and there's some strong nuclear content in there. So I would start. Off with a nuke. Yes. Yeah. So I would start. Not everyone's going to love this show, but start at least with the miniseries, which is the like first two episodes of the show. It's about like two hours long in total, maybe a little bit longer than that, but it's really great. If you don't like it after that, you're not going to like the show, but it's it's good. And I also plan on doing a podcast episode on Battlestar Galactica later this year uh, with someone that we know, Matt Corda. Uh, from the Federation of American Scientists. He, uh, we were talking about this at the Carnegie Nuclear Policy Conference. I hope we can make it work once his schedule uh, clears up and I have a chance to rewatch some of those episodes. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll check it out. We're also going to do an episode on Game of Thrones uh, in April uh, because I have some interesting theories about dragons and nuclear weapons and the role that those play in the books and in the show. Uh, so those are th some things to look out for, and uh, but that's not important. What's important right now is to thank uh, Will and Jeff for coming on the show. Uh, Will, uh, I know how to reach you. It's you. You work with me now. Smoke signals. You just yell yeah. across the cube. If someone doesn't have the privilege of working at the company that we do, uh, nuclear security things, where how, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, so I, I cut the cord, I got off of Facebook, I got off on Instagram, but you can still follow me on Twitter, at Will Satrin, that is at W-I-L-L-S-A-E-T-R-E-N. And what about you, Jeff? How can we follow your work uh, at Plowshares, some of your other writing? Because we haven't really talked about Plowshares, but Plowshares is an amazing organization that uh, has been involved for a long time 
uh, on uh, nuclear, uh, you know, nuclear sanity, you know, non-proliferation, disarmament issues. They fund a real number of great projects. Yeah. Um, but you know, what where can we follow you and some of your writings at as well? Yeah, sure. You can find me uh, on Twitter. I'm at nuclear Wilson. Uh, it's ingenious. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Good. yeah. Um, but no, I get to write a lot, a lot with Will still. Uh, we just posted a piece on the South China Morning Post. Another one over on the national interest. We're doing a lot about tactical nuclear weapons right now since they're sort of the zombie weapon that keeps coming back here. Um, but uh, really check out Plowshares on Twitter. Check out our website. Uh, we're doing a lot right now. It's interesting stuff. Terrific. I'll post some of that stuff uh, on the, in the show notes, some of the, your recent writing as well. Uh, so thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, nuke-wise or bug-wise, what you found offensive in our podcast episode, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Uh, I am on Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. We are also on Facebook. Uh, we are on email. Uh, I get one of those accounts I check, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the program, hey, go on iTunes, wherever you're at, leave a review, uh, or tell your friend or squad leader about it. Uh, it's, it's a pretty great show. Uh, we love watching um, where people are coming from when they come into contact with the show, and it's often by word of mouth, so we always really appreciate that. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer, Will Satron, and Jeff Wilson. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.